I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. And this week I'm talking to the writer and broadcaster Tarek Ali, who has a piece in the current issue of the paper on Maxime Rodinson's recently reissued biography of Muhammad. Hello Tarek, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi Tom, good to be with you. Maxime Rodinson's Life of the Prophet Muhammad was published in French in 1961. To begin, could you tell us a bit about Rodinson's own quite remarkable life story? Uh, Rodinson came from a family of Russian Jews, They fled the Tsar's pogroms in the late 19th century. And like many other refugees from Tsarist Russia, they spread to different parts of Europe. Some went to North America. The Rodinson family, uh, family, husband and wife, settled in Marseille, where they lived. That's where Maxime was born. And, you know, the way immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers move. They think that the move they'd made, however painful, will be the last one. In the case of the Rodin sons, it was extremely unfortunate, but some decades after they'd moved, and Maxime was born and grown up and etc., uh, etc., et France went fascist in the shape of the Vichy regime. And the Vichy administration actually took the initiative well before the Germans asked them to start listing, herding, dispersing the French Jews. It's a story which is told more now than it's been in the past, but it's an appalling business what took place in France under Vichy, covered up for many decades. And alas, Maxime's parents, both of them, were sent off to Auschwitz by the Vichy government, French government of the time. He was lucky. Even though uh, he couldn't carry on staying at school, his parents were poor. His father worked in the clothing industry, probably as an assistant to a tailor or a poor tailor himself. The mum looked after the home. And Maxime started working as an errand boy when he was 12, delivering newspapers. And often he would read the newspapers that he was delivering. And quite a few of them, given the area where they lived, were socialist and later communist newspapers and magazines. And that's what actually politicized him. Then, despite the fact that he had no uh, education, He was a very bright uh, young man, and he managed to get into the French Oriental Studies uh, School, 
where he learned three languages, uh, Arabic, Amharic, the Ethiopian language, and Turkish. So this would have been in the early 1930s, because he was, he was born in 1915. Yeah. He was already an expert in these languages when the Germans marched in and occupied France and the collaborationist government was created by a very large section of the French establishment, military and political. And so Maxime fortunately had been dispatched before that, just before that, to go and be a military interpreter for the French colonial army in Syria. So he went off to Damascus, but soon got fed up and then as the war stopped in France with the German occupation for some while, he shifted to work in museums, art galleries even, I think he spent some time in, and then moved to Beirut, where he played a central part in helping to set up and improve the French cultural department there. And that is what brought about his lasting interest in, in Islam, its culture, its origins, its history. And he often told people that had I not gone there, I would have been killed, sent off with my parents to Auschwitz. But secondly, I wouldn't have imbibed this wonderful culture, which was uh, new to me. I knew it because of the, and the languages, knowing the languages helped him a great deal. And he never looked, he never looked backwards. Did he stay in Beirut after the war or did he return to France? He returned to France in 1947, a few years after the war, and would tell friends, you know, just talk about his luck, that he was out of the country when all these horrors were taking place in France. And he had been a communist together with his parents, members of the French Communist Party, but left after 1956 and just devoted himself to uh, scholarship and uh, writing. Uh, and he was very brilliant, actually, both as an essayist and when he started writing these uh, works of history. I was asking my colleague Perry Anderson the other day whether... Maxime ever visited the new Left Review offices in London, and Perry said he did. He said, my only memory is of him coming up in the last stage of the stairs in our Soho offices, then in Carlisle Street, were very rickety. We all used to complain, and poor old Maxime tripped and fell. So Perry said, suddenly this apparition entered the offices of the NLR in Soho, blood pouring down his face. So he said it's a bit difficult to remember the conversation because it was such a powerful image. But he was close, he was very close to Jean-Paul Sartre and Le Temps Modern, Sartre's magazine, and very independent-minded he was, Tom. He was um, nobody's fool. He didn't take kindly to stupidities, whichever side was responsible for them, and remained firm like that for most of his uh, most of his life. What's interesting is that 
he retained his contacts with the Arab world. He made trips often to the Arab world. And even after the biography of Muhammad came out, uh, he was very highly regarded by scholars and even state education departments, etc. Because though they couldn't admit it, they knew that what he had produced was actually extremely useful for them. They couldn't necessarily write it themselves, but he could. Yes, so as, as you said in the piece, his life of Muhammad is, is a secular biography written by a, a non-believer. But he wouldn't have had many secular sources to draw on. So how did he, how did he go about it? Well, these days it would appear odd to some people that the sort of best, most engaged, sympathetic biography of the Prophet of Islam was written by a Jew given the tensions in the Middle East. Young people especially would find that difficult to believe, oh, it can't be good. But those were different times, and uh, relations hadn't been impaired to the extent they are now between these two communities. And it's an, it's an interesting question how he could get into it, because to be perfectly frank, people like me who grew up in that culture did try to understand it, but the only texts we had were either the Quran, key religious text of the religion, or various interpretations of it, or again, things the prophet or his followers are supposed to have said, which were written down, which was first spoken, then written down, and there's nothing all that reliable in them. And the Quran itself offers very little in terms of history and biography, unlike the Old Testament, which is full of fairy tales, but at least they're there. And you can see that possibly there is something which helped to enlarge this tale into um, sort of magical unrealism. You know, it's... Uh, there, but that is not the, in the in the Quran. So I think he relied a lot on what has been written, and one of the early biographies of Muhammad, which was originally written by author Ibn Saq, who in generational terms could have been the Prophet's grandson. It's a relatively close, twenty years later or fifty. It wasn't published in manuscript form, in sort of bound form, for another few decades. And then under the recension of someone else who was then in charge of the semi-official documents of the faith. But it was written much earlier, and that's why I think it has a lot of stuff in it which is accurate. And a lot of stuff that was in it was taken out for reasons best known to them. I mean, this is an old habit which extends to Chinese emperors, you know, burning books of, pre of the past. But in this case, they just wanted a single narrative, which they felt was necessary for the religion and the culture to move forward. So he wrote it, and there's no doubt. I mean, I've read the that uh, biography as well that uh, Maxime Rodinson and others used that book a lot, and then they needed to do it. And one of the things that was very firmly established in the original biography in Arabic was that the prophet was an orphan. 
Now, this seems normal today, so what, we could say. But in those times, orphans weren't looked on kindly because this was, their lineage had been disrupted. And pre-Islamic Arab culture and post-Islamic was very strong on lineages and purity and all that, not just for human beings, for horses. In one reason, Arab states have been famous throughout history is because they were very careful who they mated it, mated them with. And this extended to, to, to human beings as well, or maybe it was the other way around. So that was very clearly a sensitive and sore point with the Prophet, because then when he has his visions, as Rosanne puts them, in one of the visions, Gabriel says to him, and the fact that you are an orphan, is of no significance whatsoever. You're the messenger of God. Now, that indicates the tensions within his own tribe, uh, the fact that he was isolated, the fact that he was probably laughed at by many people. Ha ha, you're setting up a new religion. What is this? Who are you? What are you doing? Where are these visions? So Rodansan gave a materialist explanation for all this and reconstructed the prophet's biography, contextualizing it both historically and in the socioeconomic needs of the tribes at the time. And the fact that these two empires were collapsing, and Muhammad clearly was a gifted strategist who said we need something of our own in a unified way. So this would have been just... The two empires that were collapsing were the Roman Empire yeah. and the Persian Empire. And this was all in the 7th century. Well, the-, the first two chapters of the biography set the stage, the European stage, if you like. Rome besieged by barbarians. The Eastern Christendom seeming quite peaceful and calm, but actually tensions already beginning to show underneath. The Persian Empire, likewise, breaking up, but without the rulers actually being aware of how deep the rot had gone. And so the creation of Islam, coinciding with the implosion of two huge empires on different levels and, you know, not exactly at the same time, but at the same time within a span of 50 years. And that is what made Islam. It stepped in. The armies created by the handful of people, actually. I mean, if one wants to think about a modern version of that, it's like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara setting off in a boat to try and take Cuba. I mean, well, I was going to say, you make him talk, you make Mohammed sound quite like Lenin in this way. So, that, yeah. That taking the opportunity of very the, much so that is i think rodenson had that in mind uh, because he compares in some later essays islam to the communist movement and it's sort of it's very interesting but um, he was clearly a gifted military leader the people he got around him learned politics on the hoof, so to speak. They And as they took more and more countries and cities, they felt they needed something. And hence, the, the debates and the necessity to create one version of the Quran, in which a number of things were 
were changed, as is well known now. I mean, Muhammad had decided at a very early stage that the Jews and the Christians were right on monotheism. And you had to break with all the local gods, because there were some incredibly powerful male and female gods and goddesses who inhabited the uh, world, the imaginary world of Arabia. And he picked on Allah, like the Christians had picked on Zeus, Deus. And Allah became the Muslim version of Deus, or Zeus. And the other gods were more or less gradually got rid of. The last two to be got rid of was incredibly popular women goddesses. Once their tribes had converted to Islam, then a very rigorous monotheism was uh, enforced, and in debates with Christian theologians, Muslim theologians used to argue, but you know, you had to create the Holy Ghost and the Madonna. We didn't need that. We just said there's one God, nothing else. There's a messenger who took his message, heard his message and took it to earth, nothing else. And they were so strict that in early Islam, they said there's no monkery in Islam. Muhammad is supposed to have said, every Muslim should be self-educated. We don't need a layer of monks or an organized church like the Christian church to do it. It has to be universal and it has to be self-taught and self-emancipated. That is what was said. So it's quite an interesting contrast. And Christianity was the main rival to Islam at the time. I mean, there were Jewish tribes with whom the you know, new Muslims sometimes fought, but by and large, the big battles, uh, both on a tribal scale and later on a state level, and later globally, came with Christianity. The speed at which which it spread, the speed of conquest and the amount of territory, were very maybe more even than Alexander the Great had. That is astonishing. That. Within a century, the armies of this new religion had uh, reached the edge of Europe, and Spain and Portugal fell to the Arabs. Very easily, it has to be said. All the accounts, you know, these Spanish uh, have their currently, and for some time, the Spanish said, oh, we were betrayed by traitors, Count Julian, and these people invited the Arabs in. It's true they did, but you have to ask, why did they? (laughs) And things weren't going too well uh, with the uh, Visigoths and their replacements. And... um, People wanted a change. And interestingly enough, those who welcomed the armies most enthusiastically and vigorously were the Jewish segments of the population who were living under grave restrictions and ghettoization rules and discrimination. That was ended when Islam and the Arabs in the shape of the Arab armies took that whole peninsula, and then governed it for nearly 500 years. So the entire culture of uh, Spain and Portugal was Arabic. I remember once uh, I was giving a a talk in Galicia, and I made these points, and someone, very nice uh, person, raised his hand and said, well, you're right on most of these things, but not Galicia. I said, what? He said, 
the Arabs never got to Galicia. By pure luck, a friend had handed me a just a newly produced pamphlet in Spanish by some um, institute in Madrid, which I'd been reading on the plane. Just luck. So I said, hang on. Here's something just published in Madrid. These are the names of people, the monks, Christian monks, who worked this monastery, one of the largest in Galicia in whatever year it was, uh, 800 and something. And I said, leave aside everything else. I'll just read out the list of monks, which has just been discovered by archaeologists. And what were the names? Muhammad, Hussein, Musa, all of them were Arab names of Jewish or Muslim extraction but Arab names, and these were all Christian monks. So I said, you know, you don't need to be ashamed of it. The culture went very deep, as is obvious in your language, and many, many other things that we see uh, <clears throat> in in uh, this part of the world, both in Spain and in Portugal. And he grumbled, but he just sat down. He couldn't say anything. And I think that applies to the entire peninsula. And it isn't only the names of people that have endured. No. And I mean, if you look even at the names of uh, some of the uh, Spanish towns, you see them beginning with Al, quite a lot of them. Almaria, for instance. Almaria, as it's called uh, now. Or the very name in which Nelson's big triumph took place against uh, the Spanish which is named a square in the heart of London, Trafalgar Square. The battle took place very close to the Spanish coast, and the name of the place is Tarifa, and the original name of the place is Tarifa Algar, Trafalgar. Or if you look at the word admiral, it comes from uh, Amir al-Bahr, Lord of the Sea in Arabic. Or if you look at when the Arabs first reached the Atlantic coast, what they called it was Al-Gharab, the West. From Al-Gharab comes the Algarve, where so many people go on holiday. There is that um, reluctance to admit that you talked about the influence of of Islamic and Arabic language and culture on on Europe, um, and in your piece you mentioned Cervantes, and you know, I have to admit I'd never really paid much attention to the way that that Don Quixote pays tribute to Spain's Arabic culture, even the fact that Cervantes claims he discovered the manuscripts written in Arabic. That sort of doesn't seem to get talked about. It's amazing how Western culture can shut itself off from this and. That last translation of Cervantes by Edith Grossman is very brilliant. In some of the earlier translations, you would miss a lot because they're pretty bad translations, you know. Edith Grossman's translation is brilliant. She just captures that novel like no one else, no other translator has done. And so I read it twice for purposes of my own. I was working on something at the time, and I was shaken myself at how many references there are. First, Cervantes writes, this is not my book. 
I'm just the trans I'm just translating it into Castilian. I actually found it in the old Arab bazaar in Toledo, the Alcana Bazaar, one of the oldest ones. And there it was amongst other manuscripts, and I liked the look of it, and I bought it back. Then he says, uh, Arabic, of course, is an ancient language, but there's one even more antique, and he leaves it at that. But the hint is clear, because we know now, the circumstantial evidence for this is huge, that Cervantes himself belonged to a Jewish family. They came from a family of physicians in Cordoba who were 80% of them were Jewish. And they had to hide this in order to get on after the Jews were expelled in 1492. They had to hide this fact, because if you were a new Christian, as the old Christians called them, i.e. Jewish and Muslim converts, Maranos and Moriscos, you were not allowed to travel to the new world as colonists, because they felt you might revert to your old religion, and who knows, these new colonies might develop Jews and Muslim Spaniards in, in fighting, so they were ultra-cautious. And Cervantes was never accepted for that journey. He applied, and he was turned down. And obviously, we know why. And then his father used a lot of influence and no doubt cash to try and his, get his name on a clean list of Spaniards. This is the sort of thing that used to go on. So Cervantes's novel, I mean, my own interpretation of that novel is that actually, if you read it very closely, it's a huge attack on the Catholic Church. He says, you know, and it's disguised, of course. The book starts with book burnings and all the books he's throwing away, these useless books on chivalry, which is a reference to the book burnings in Granada in 1499. Then he says, of these books, there is only one, there are only one or two worth preserving. And you think, could this be really, as he's writing the Old Testament and the Quran? It, it immediately strikes you. And then the first attack, or, you know, then there's lots of sort of, obviously, it's very funny to the book. And the attack they make by mistake, they say, the book says, on, people who turn out to be actually a convoy being accompanied by the Holy Brotherhood, the Inquisition secret police, and the first secret police to be created on the European continent. So the attack by the, uh, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza on these people who turn out to be the Holy Brotherhood, it's not accidental. And, and, and nothing in that book is accidental. And the references, I mean, I put only a few in into my LRB piece, but there are many, many others. You know, they haunt the novel. This is a novel being written soon after there's been a huge ethnic cleansing. The Jews expelled in 1492, the Muslims in 1526, and what they were told is either you convert or you get out of our country. They'd been there 500 years. And that's fine, they said. But if you convert, and we find out that the conversion is fake, 
and secretly you're practicing your old faiths, then there's only one solution, execution. You'll be hanged as heretics. And so, you know, the, the, what happened there was quite astonishing. Um, one reason why, I mean, I'd always assumed this after visiting Spain when I was researching my some other books, that why are there so many different kinds of pork in Spain? And I just assumed that when the converts, Muslims and Jews, had to eat pork to show their loyalty, and this is, by the way, true, the spies of the Holy Brotherhood used to go outside Jewish silversmiths and goldsmiths in Mallorca, for instance, to see if they were still selling on the Jewish Sabbath and whether they were eating pork. So, of course, all the converso Jews used to make a point of opening their shops on Saturday, sit outside the shops very ostentatiously eating pork. And then uh, uh, one day I was reading Claudia Rodin, and she said the reason pork is so popular and so nicely done in different ways in Spain is because it was the only way Jews and Muslims could eat it, the ones who'd converted to Christianity. So this goes very deep in Spanish culture, the expulsions that took place and the people who were left behind. And so Cervantes was obviously, as given his own background, but generally being a Spaniard, fully cognizant of all that was going on. And you find it, I mean, one of these days I will write an essay on that book alone, because there's a lot more to be got out of it. The way you, you describe Don Quixote and Sancho Panza and their guerrilla attack on the, on the Inquisition makes them sound a bit like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara heading out in there. Yeah, he loved, by the way, he loved, uh, both he and Che loved Cervantes. And Spanish readers who read it in the original language just read it differently. You know, there are those from the Spanish Academy, Royal Spanish Academy, who still won't accept that Cervantes was or may have been of Jewish parentage. And they then read the book in a particular way, because, of course, he put in a lot of stuff in there as a mask to, you know, disguise, in my opinion, what the book was really about. But, you know, okay, that's sort of run of the melee reader. What shocked me was that this wonderful translation by Grossman, wrecked by this ignorant introduction by Bloom, one of the great sort of literary scholars of official America. I mean, how could he not see that, that this is what the book is about? You wonder whether he even read the translation or just because he'd read it before knocked this out. It did shock me that, the, the degree of ignorance uh, on this. And then moving from Spain to France or back to France, that uh, Redanson's book was published towards the end of the Algerian War of Independence. Was that an influence on him? Or how, mu how much was the, the war in Algeria? Well, he was completely opposed to the Algerian War, as was most of the intellectual left in France. I mean, Sartre himself, you know, really stepped out and made his position very clear at a time when it was difficult to do so. I mean, the Socialist Party was involved in that war. Uh, they were in government as the war continued. The position of the French Communist Party, very opportunist, 
not talking too much about the war, making a few noises, but nothing like setting up a solidarity movement with the Algerians. That solidarity movement was conducted by people, independent leftists or the far-left groups, but the French intelligentsia, the dominant wings of it, the left bank, were very hostile to that war. So Rodinson was part of that and, you know, disgusted by the torture and what was going on in Algeria. And that no doubt had a, had an impact on him, but he was into all this. I don't know, uh, to be honest, when he started making notes and quarrying to write uh, the biography, probably while he was in the Middle East. I'm sure he started it then because it, it, it was a long project. And then he changed it, added more stuff later. The intended audience presumably was, was initially a, in France. It was, a, it was to educate Western Europeans about... Absolutely. That was why he wrote the book. You know, the French intellectuals, they could be on the left or the right but they were very deeply buried in their own culture. I mean, if you didn't speak French, they didn't care a damn, unlike today where they can't exist unless a book is published in English in America or Britain, and they don't even care which publisher does it. They even prepare to offer money for their work to be published in English. But in those days, uh, French culture was totally dominant as an intellectual culture. I mean, France was still the intellectual workshop of the world in many ways. And so they knew that the intelligent people elsewhere would read the book, either translate it or they spoke and read French anyway. But the book by Rodinson, I think, was initially written very much with his, the audience, the French audience in mind. But it had a much bigger impact than that. I mean, it was translated very rapidly. And it was then circulated both in English and in French in the colonial and former colonial worlds where it was very well received. I mean, I remember being in uh, Egypt in the after the Six-Day War in the late 60s and uh, 67, and an Egyptian friend he, he said to me, have you read Rodinson's book on Muhammad? And I said, no. You've got to read it. I said, why? We know the business. We've grown up. He said, you have got to read it, Tarek. You will learn a lot. So I read it the minute I could get hold of it, and it had a huge impact on me. And it circulated then throughout the Muslim world itself because Islamic history depends whether which country you grow up in is taught largely in religious language, you know, then this happened. It's a collection of tales from the existing sources. India was, United India was a bit better. There were Muslim scholars who went deeper and wrote about Spanish Islam and Italian Islam. There's a book written by an Indian scholar on um, uh, Sicily and what happened in Sicily in the 12th century. That's where I got some of my knowledge about these things, not from any indigenous text, but by scholars writing monographs and getting away with it because they were meant to be too scholarly to uh, infect anyone apart from those who lived in that milieu. But uh, Rodinson, 
and prior to him an English scholar, an eccentric Christian Marxist as he called himself, H. Montgomery Watt had written a biography in the 1950s, which I read later on just to compare it to Rodin's son. It's very different in tone and style, but it's it's also useful. And these two books... I think, broke in their different ways the total domination of or the almost total domination in the West of Islamic history by Christians and Christian propagandists at that. And it's not that there weren't some uh, French people, French scholars who were Catholics and wrote in a very positive, semi-objective way about Islam, but they were few and far between. And when I was searching for the history of Islam in Sicily, I went into a big bookshop in Palermo and asked the lady, who was very knowledgeable, I said, has anything been written on Islam in Sicily? What happened? You know, what didn't happen? And she said, do you know the works of Michele Amari? I said, translated? She said, yeah, translated into Italian from Sicilian Italian. So I said, no. And she, we climbed up the stairs, and there were, I think, 10 volumes. Never been translated into Arabic or English or French. So I just bought them and, and brought them back to London and with a dictionary tried to read some of them. And they were very, very interesting. And Rodanson's book being republished now... In English, is it is it a new English translation or is it the same translation? Thank God, it's the old translation. It's very good, and the NYRB didn't try and do anything new with it. They, someone must have advised them, don't change translators. It's a wonderful translation. And so what's the point? It's some, I mean, there are some bad translations, as in the case of Cervantes, which I fully understand to get a new one was necessary. But for Rodinson, uh, there wasn't. And it's quite sort of funny, not funny, but sort of actually nice. I've already got six or seven emails from people saying we had no idea of this book. And they're sort of from all over, not British mainly Muslim, young Muslims, saying we're now going to uh, get hold of this book and read it, thank you for your advice, etc., etc. So I think the time for this book, funnily enough, is right. And not just for Muslims, but actually for ordinary young French kids, you know, people young men and young women who have no idea of Islam. I mean, every French school history makes a big deal of the Battle of Poitiers, where the Spanish Muslim armies were defeated by Martel. This is in every French history is a huge triumph and victory, which no doubt it was for Christianity, not for secularism, by the way. So it's something that could be read, and, you know, in, at the end of my review, I say it is one of the antidotes to Islamophobic poison, which is especially deeply rooted in France. And if this book were put on a text as a course book for sixth formers, or the, their equivalent, senior school students, not to mention university departments, it would have an impact. And not just on... Uh, 
ethnic French people, but also on the new generations of children from the old colonies who are growing up there now in their third generation, something to read, which both sides can read. And the same applies to Britain, by the way, where, you know, the culture is very deficient in all this. It's either sort of nice, glitzy, feel-good stories about Islam or just awful stuff. And you need books like this, which can be read by both sides and then discussed by both sides and, you know, criticized, not criticized. And this is one book, uh, I think, which could have that effect if the education departments in the West were so inclined. Charles Martel's victory at Poitiers in 732. Um, Do you suppose Emmanuel Macron has... Has read Rodin Sons. I wonder. He boasts of having read a lot, but the, all he seems to be reading these days, over and over again, are De Gaulle's memoirs, which are not going to help him in France at the present moment. It would do him good to read this, actually, because I bet he hasn't. I mean, he, you know, puts on this act. I am an intellectual. It's largely make believe. I don't think. He has read it, and I don't think most of the people in his circle have read it. But I think NYRB classics have done everyone a huge favor by putting this book out, and it will surprise some. And, you know, we laugh sometimes that we get, in my generation, oh, we're too obsessed with history. But if you look at some of the fascist, French fascist right-wing uh, graffiti in villages and in towns, uh, especially outside uh, places where people of Arab origin are living. One of the graffitis, which is very popular, is Remember Martel? Recently, I saw a big pick, Remember Martel? So history doesn't go away. You know, it's used. And so they might as well promote the... Uh, the Rodin son to get some sense of some sort of sanity back into that country, which is the worst on this at the present time. And the Western European or Christendom's continuing destruction of Islamic culture is continuing with the bombardment of, of Yemen now, that British bombs are being dropped on. I mean, Yemen is one of the oldest countries of the Arab Peninsula. Much, much older. It is the oldest, unless we also count Ethiopia. But between them, they are. I mean, the Saudi Arabia is a modern creation created by the British Empire at the end of the First World War, enduring it to a certain extent, and then handed over to the Americans in the middle of the Second World War. I mean, it's just a new country. The Gulf states, quite honestly, I mean, used to be petrol stations for various empires, and now they've got uh, ideas about themselves, which are, again, very dependent on the West. But uh, Yemen is a, a genuinely ancient civilization and country, both for Jews and Muslims. The Yemeni Jews were incredibly strong uh, layer. They were never a majority, but they were never persecuted and never wanted to leave till the formation of Israel, which disrupted those relationships too. But the trip I made to Yemen about 10 years ago when I was with architect friends and we managed to get into this old mosque in Sana'a, which was being repaired, 
and the obvious things, of course. I mean, and it was being repaired, and the young people working on it were mainly Italians. It was a team of Italian architects, male and female. And the just to mention this, the young women are wearing jeans and T-shirts. And I said, are there any restrictions? They said, no, but for our own safety, they just advise us to put on a headscarf when we are going from here to where we are living in the bus or in the special bus. I said, is that all? They said, yeah, that's all. And we have never encountered any hostility on the streets or the bazaars or the shops. And it's been fantastic working on it. And they they showed me the what they'd discovered. You know, the mosque had uh, been a, a church, before that a temple, you know, a pagan temple, church, mosque, the usual transition in in that part of the world, and not just there, in many other parts of the world too. And uh, they had found out lots of interesting things, one of which was the huge discovery now accepted, that in a secret hidden compartment in the ceiling somewhere, they'd found a very old copy of the Quran. And that copy was old itself. But when with all the modern systems of carbon dating, they could actually read the copy, the original on which two other editions had been written versions had been inscribed. And the original written in Hejazi calligraphy, I mean, basically from Medina and Mecca, was the very first extant edition of the Quran, which they changed later, but they could read it. So when I said, does anyone here read it? And the Yemeni architects present said, well, some people have. So I said, is it available? They said, not for everyone. I said, for scholars? They said, yeah. Scholars who we recognize as scholars are allowed to see it. But the Germans say that there's some bits, and they've obviously got copies, which they're not allowed to reveal. So it does make you wonder what that is, but quite a lot of how. And what that does is sort of, deal with all the theories which say that the Quran was written 200 years after his death or this, that, and the other. That's never true. I mean, a, a workable version existed under the third uh, Khalifa, Caliph, uh, Usman. Uh, but this is even prior to that, which shows that there was a written version of these Islamic scriptures either circulating or not, but probably circulating if one had landed up at this mosque at the time when he was probably alive or had just died, uh, which does transform a lot of thinking amongst the scholars on the origins of and when the editions first were first published. I mean, to me, it's never been of huge interest because what is more interesting is how it came about. And lots of people saw, had visions in those days all over the world. I mean, having visions and hearing voices was not simply something that happened in the Arab world. And Rodensen argues with some conviction, it's perfectly possible he heard them. And what he heard was, or what he wanted to hear, what he heard, in when he sat alone 
The visions only, the oral visions only came when he was alone. And so basically some of them must have included or did include, as we know, stories from the Old Testament, which were spoken and circulated by preachers or by storytellers. It was just part of the culture. So some of these ended up in the Quran too, with their own uh, uh, twists and, and turns. Tariq Ali, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. You can read Tariq Ali's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Ian Penman on the Beatles, Tessa Hadley on the first Mrs. Meredith, and Gaith Abdullahad reports from Nagorno-Karabakh.